The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide, part two. and 
we had two little kids, and it was the day after my son's first birthday, and I invited Donna and Justine to come over for supper that night because my it was snowing and cold, and my old dad called and said he wasn't going to be able to make it down, which there's no way he should have come down in that kind of weather and went home after dark. But but they they didn't come over, and you know that was the morning, the following morning was when she died. Yeah, just incredible, you know, just incredible. And as it occurred to me that they were gone, you know, for a week or more, I thought it was an accident. But then gradually, I started cooperating with the investigation because I would have done anything I could do, you know, to help find the truth and help. But then uh, the police really started giving me a hard time. I'm a lawyer. Uh, they finally started putting me on guard, and uh, I told them what I thought of them and went home. And, you know, then it was quite some time again. I mean, they had all the evidence, but they didn't put it together until that man almost killed another woman. The, the fire chief, these idiots thought there was a, a, first of all, I was hearing from friends around town that they were saying there wasn't a smoke detector in that apartment. And that was a lie. They should have looked for it. You know, my guess is he must have taken it down and probably disabled it when it went off or else he was already out of the apartment before the smoke detector went off. But they had that wrong. You know, I mean, God, actually an insurance person went in there and immediately found the smoke detector, analyzed it, and said it was operational. So you know, I don't know what that was about. And then the chief of police came in the bank and slapped his hand on the desk of the bank's executive vice president and said, why are you protecting him? Harold said, get your ass out of here. I mean, he, I know all about that guy. (laughs) You know, you probably know what projection is. People who have their own faults, have trouble trusting other people and project their own faults on others. That's what was going on with the poor clowns from the Canton PD that were investigating and the fire chief who thought he was investigating um, the sharpest tools in the shed. I don't know how many homicides those guys had handled. I had handled none. But the questions they were asking me and I was answering got so stupid. You know, I don't have a doubt in my mind that I could learn any of your jobs. And if I wasn't better at it than you are, I would quit and find something I was better at. And I am damn sure none of you could have my job. Uh, that really installed them, you know, but it woke them up a little bit. That's when I knew it was over and it was time to go. They. They came and got me at my house and wanted me to go down to the cop shop and talk to him about what had happened. That was like, I don't know how long after, but 
quite a while. We didn't know yet that they were investigating as a, investigating it as a homicide. And as soon as I left the house, two of them came over and started interrogating my wife. And she caught on to what was going on real quickly. You know, and she just threw them out of the house because she didn't want to take the chance of saying anything that would have made them suspicious of me like I did myself, but I was a lawyer. I was just telling them the truth and I had nothing to tell them to give them any suspicion whatsoever, you know. They investigators thought either we were having an affair or I was trying to cover up an embezzlement. And I knew by the time I was a child that murdering people would draw more attention to crimes than it would cover it up. I would not have hurt those two people for anything in the world, you know. Donna and I were friends. She's, She's actually, other than the law firm that hired me, she was the great, they sent me to the bank she worked at then to open an account. And we kind of made friends the first time we met, you know, at least enough to remember each other. And then her daughter, uh, my wife and our, our her, she and Justine and our daughter were nearly the same age. Justine was about a year older, so my wife had babysit both of them and let them play together and stuff. And uh, I knew John's family a little bit, and you know, it, it just it was so frustrating because. My wife and I started telling each other, those morons aren't going to figure out what happened. We've got a better chance to figure out what's happened here. And once we knew it was a homicide from different things people were telling us, um, we were just so frustrated that we knew they weren't going to be able to solve it because they just... You know, they they had the imagination of a microwave or something. My wife watches too many crime shows still, and I don't know if that got her started on it. I hate things like that. I don't like to watch anything about the law because, you know, that was my life for long enough. And uh, I was glad to leave responsibilities that I had behind and let somebody younger who needed a job take over. But, you know, that that's the biggest thing that's ever happened in my life, you know, and the uh, pain and suffering that I went through for a while after that, and still do, you know, but not a day has passed, what, three years now? Not a day has passed that I, did, that I don't think about that or them at some time in the day. But the police department was so pathetic. And the people at the state's attorney's office knew me enough to think, good God, you better bring some evidence down here before we go out and arrest him, because they knew me. Members of the bar, judges and everybody knew me far better than the police department. So they would never have solved it, I don't believe, if he hadn't struck again and they got him that time and then started looking at it again and uh, someone eventually 
knew more of the background of Donnie Bull and came to me and told me what they knew. And I gave them the business card that one of the law enforcement people had given me. And I think that helped to uh, point them more in the right direction. But when the trial came, they were all trying to make up with me. And the chief of police comes in and says, uh, you know, I'm sure it was really hard for you, but I want you to know that I'm really proud of my guys. I said, Chief, either you don't know what I know, or it doesn't take much to make you proud of your guys, because they didn't solve a damn thing. They had all the evidence right in front of them and were acting like they couldn't see it. I know how the crime got solved. You should, too. He got mad and walked away. But for him to come up and try to make up with me by lying to me, I wouldn't have it. I wouldn't have it, you know. They ended up firing the guy for completely different reasons who actually did most of the interviewing me. He was, <laughs> he's just a moron. And years later, he got a job as a car dealer and I went out there to, to buy a car. Oh God, you know, he came to talk to me. So I kind of tried to apologize. And I said, you're never gonna sell me a car in this life, you know, give it up. And my wife says I never forgive anybody for anything, but I do, as long as uh, someone who's really made me mad tells me their side of the story, it's over and forgotten, you know? I don't bear any grudges, but fool me twice, shame on me. Um, but, you know, I don't talk about it, but... I'm not afraid to bring it back up, you know. It kind of makes me feel better to know that someone understands in case it might help somebody else someday. We brought it on ourselves to some extent, you know. And that was tragic because she wasn't the kind of person to be suspicious of anybody in this little town either. Just like I wasn't, but that was kind of what led to it, I think. It was a predator, saw her, thought she was attractive, and the uh, story is, drank, drank a case of beer, did crack cocaine somehow, turned into an animal, and did what he did early in the morning. My rambling getting things up my chest. She wasn't your friend. Two hundreds of people in that town, not just me. Her family came to the funeral and said, I can't believe how many people are here. I told them why. She grew up in Connecticut, but for, uh, I don't remember precisely, but she told me, I think after she started working with me, you know, she graduated from Marquette in Milwaukee and had some relatives, actually at least one in Canton. And uh, I think her family had started up around La Salle, Peru, where she was buried. Eventually, the casket I carried was empty, but didn't know that at the time. So she had been to Illinois a few times, apparently, and something made her come down here to get a job after she graduated. 
and she worked for the competing bank in town until basically they were shutting down their trust department and probably didn't need her. And then she called me and said, you know, would you feel uncomfortable if we worked together? And I said, no, not at all, would you? And she laughed, you know, said, no, not at all, you know, because we known each other for quite a few years there. There was nothing between us other than some friendship and then eventually working together after the bank agreed to hire her. I needed help and she was experienced and she was just as good to work with as anyone could have been. I had trouble replacing her when she was gone. And every day if I got in one of the trust files I'd see work that she had done. You know, she was just responsible, came to work on time every day, treated everyone in the bank and in town great. You know, just, she was a very good worker and to me, a very nice person and beyond any doubt, a good mother. You know, I, I think her whole family's very upstanding people and I was glad that I got to meet them all and get to know them better, but circumstances of meeting most of them couldn't possibly have been worse. And once she had her child, once she had a husband, I have no doubt he was the most important thing in life to her. And once she had it, she had Justine, there, there was no doubt that she was a good mother. She talked a lot about her family. Um, when she found out that her mother had cancer, you know, she was really obsessed with that and her mother didn't live very long. And, you know, we, quite a few people from the bank went up to LaSalle Peru for her mother's funeral. And, you know, she, she was just a nice Italian Catholic girl. That's <laughs> about all that. Yeah, I don't like to stereotype people. But on the other hand, I think I've learned in life that if you put people in categories, at least it kind of gives you a frame of reference there as you get to know them. She'd only been back from Connecticut for a very few days. I took a little heat at the bank for letting her go during the holidays because January, first day of January was a big day for the trust department, but she wanted to go home real bad. You know, and let me know that. And I said, you got vacation coming, you go, you know, we'll get it worked out until you get back. And when she got back, she thanked me profusely. And uh, there's no way I would have told her no, she couldn't go home and have Christmas and New Year's with her family, my God. And other bank officers came in, a couple of them that, uh, uh, I was fighting to be the president or something, tried to criticize me, and I threw their butts out of my office in no uncertain terms. I was old enough that uh, I tried to get along with everybody, but don't try to abuse me because I'm not going to take it. My wife had bought me a, what was for us a very expensive winter coat not long before that. And when I went out back to work, people saw that my hair was singed a little bit, and there are still tiny specks on the lapel of that coat. 
that I can see. It's still hanging in the closet. It was a black, long, uh, camera. what do you call that stuff? Kind of a fuzzy, uh, suede-like thing. My wife paid over $400 for that thing. You know, what, Christmas of 83 or 84, that was a very nice dress coat that I could wear to the bank or to church or a funeral or wherever I was going. And I haven't worn it now for a long time, but, and people told me when they came in my office, you know, I just kind of sat there with my head in my hands for about an hour <laughs> after I went back to work. And people, quite a few people stopped in to talk to me, all meaning well. One guy I hardly knew, but who knew Donna, came in my office and we were friends from then until he died. He was an old man, pretty important guy in town. Came in and told me that he, had let, he was a captain in World War II and uh, put four of his men in a jeep across the river. I have pictures of my dad driving a jeep in a river in Germany, and that jeep sunk. Two of those guys died. I didn't talk to a police officer at the scene of the fire. I talked to some people from the fire department, and uh, I talked to an investigator for the state fire marshal's office. And actually, the investigator for the state fire marshal's office, I found out later, did a very good job of questioning me and understood every answer that I gave him where the local people tried to twist everything I answered into something they couldn't believe. <laughs> you know? And uh, I probably, I just won't say how I know everything that happened from their investigation, but I do, and, you know, it, I knew as soon as I saw the results of their investigation, they actually talked to the murderer, I think that very morning, and, you know, the case was laid out as plain for them, you know, that, uh, as plain as the nose on their face, you know, that what were they doing, you know, for a month that almost cost another young lady her life. Yeah, it just infuriates me. But I'm not a cop. But I do know more about the law than any of them. And I probably know more about the criminal law than most of them. That's kind of, uh, they learn what they have to, you know. And I'm sure they were already complaining. And uh, I know for a fact from friends at the courthouse that they were trying to get me arrested with no evidence at all other than being Donna's boss and the first one on the scene. I tried to get him to go inside. I tried to get him to go inside. And the fire chief said, we can't go inside until we vent the fire. I said, look, I pulled the air conditioner out of the window right beside the front door, and I opened the front door. I think I closed it behind me when I left. You know, I vented the fire. I didn't help anything, but I didn't even know there was a fire. 
he goes, we can't go in there. They climbed up on the roof and shot the hole in the freaking roof, you know. All that took, I don't know how long, but it seemed like an hour to me standing outside in the cold, you know. Being pretty sure that there were two people inside that I cared about that I couldn't find. So I tried to get him to go inside. When they ended up going inside, I think the guy that put the Canton Fire Department's new mask on so that you could, like, see in the dark, I knew that guy, and I had donated a hundred bucks of my own money back when I had very little so that the Canton Fire Department could buy that piece of equipment. So he got right in there, and when he came out, I went up to him so I could see what was going on, and he said, we've got two people in there. And that was the end of it for me because I knew who they were. And uh, one of my friends that worked for the newspaper came up and talked to me. And he, I was really glad to see him and he really calmed me down. He and I walked around out there and just talked, you know. He was a photographer. We're still friends. <laughs> I can't tell you what time I got back to the bank, really. Time was standing still. But when I went back to the bank, several people called me and stopped in. I think my brother called before noon. But then the guy who I asked to go with me took me over to his house for lunch. And his wife had something for us to eat. And we went out on their like screen room. And uh, it was really cold out. But we went out on their porch, which was enclosed, and sat there. And, uh, I just didn't have anything to talk about, but they talked to me mostly about the birds at their bird feeder, and, you know, I, I knew they were really trying to help, and I love them both, them. still do, good people, very good people, better people than me, probably, they were raised better. My wife and I grew up poor family, poor, poor families, you know, raised kind of helter-skelter, but we were better with our kids because we knew what not to do. People started telling me things that they knew. And it wasn't long until I put things together. And eventually, someone told me that there was no smoke in their lungs. <laughs> that was the clincher. You know, I understood that instantly. And exactly how they found that out, that just shows you how this town leaks. You know, some, a friend of mine told me that they were in a coffee shop and I heard one of the fire department people say, yeah, there wasn't any, fire, wasn't any uh, fire alarm in there. The law said there had to be. And I already knew by then that there was. The, uh, the guy that had the fire insurance policy on that played football for my brother at Monmouth College. So when I came to Canton, he had heard a lot about me from my little brother. And he got over there, and I think he found a fire extinguisher. And I think that was later that day. I think it might have been dark by the time he got there. Uh, he went over there and looked over the house, and I think he found a fire extinguisher. Holy Christ, you know, the fire department and police had been there, and they didn't find the fire extinguisher, and the insurance agent did. Come on. I guess they had uh, donuts to eat and uh, traffic to direct or something in this city of 12,000 with half a dozen stoplights. Homicide cops, they weren't 
Once we knew for sure it was a homicide, we just wanted it solved. And because those idiots definitely were trying to build a case against me, but I just had enough faith in everyone that you can't make a case where there's not. It's pretty hard to do, you know. You, it's pretty hard to convict a guilty person if you've got a decent prosecutor, judge, jury. I like to think that the criminal law, for the most part, does a pretty good job. Nobody pleads guilty these days. Everybody wants to get out of everything from the former president of the United States on down. You know, they try to plea bargain everything, and I didn't have anything to plea bargain. I told those guys the very first thing. I want to tell you the truth of everything I know and everything I saw. And I saw things that morning that no one else did, but I couldn't get in that apartment. I just knew if I got in there, I wasn't going to get out. You know, it was, the smoke was incredibly thick, incredibly thick. You can't imagine. You really can't imagine. And for a little while, it was white. I still kind of wonder what was burning there, that the smoke could be so white. But it poured out of that rectangular window like like a smokestack, you know, like it was a locomotive. And the wind was really strong, and the smoke came out toward me, and then immediately got whipped away, I think, towards the east, you know. And that was when, you know, I just had to get inside. I mean, I would have punched through the front door with my fist, but I saw that metal and I just took a hold of it, still had my gloves on, ripped it off, made a little hole by the door handle, took one of my gloves off, I put it under my other arm like I have a habit of doing, I reached inside and unlocked the door and swung the door open. Oh my God, you know, what a nightmare. But I thought, maybe I can see better. So I think I got down on all fours right in the doorway and I could see a glow, which to me, I thought was probably the place, not necessarily where the fire started, but what was burning most or hottest at that moment. It was just a glow through the smoke. I saw it. I told them that. They said, there's no way you could see that. I go, bullshit. I saw it. I saw it. I saw it. You know? I'll tell anybody who wants to know. But I saw that, and I have a pretty good idea how far away it was and the angle it was from where I was crouching. I saw it. They all just, you know, I don't even think they wrote that down. They only wrote down something that sounded funny. So they said, do you know anything about fire? I said, well, when I was growing up on the farm, you know, uh, there would be things around the farm, you know, that my dad would tell me to gather up and burn. So I started burning trash and wood and stuff at a young age. And then we used to go fishing and we'd build a fire and stuff. And when I lived in Galesburg, I had a fireplace. I had a fireplace put in my house. But, you know, that's it. So yeah, I probably do know a little bit more about fire than most people do than some people to, you know, actual fire because, yeah, I have started a lot of fires.
Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson. Editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.